They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are very much diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 hours or 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head, one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 47 Man to Man At the start of December, I flew to the Isle of Man for a few days. There were a number of reasons that drove me to want to do that, but as we approached the island, I was starting to have second thoughts. There was a fresh storm approaching from the southwest, and in the twin propellered aircraft, you felt it. And as we banked before our final approach into Ronaldsway Airport, I had a very close look at the steel grey Irish Sea churning away beneath me. It made me wonder if this wasn't the greatest decision of my life. But it was a smoother landing than I'd anticipated. Clearly, they've done this before. I was here for four reasons. Firstly, to visit the Manx Museum. I heard that they had a store of newspapers on microfiche, newspapers not available online, which I wanted to take a close look at to ensure that I'd seen every piece of coverage of the disappearance of John Jick. I just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything in the Isle of Man newspapers that went in the England newspapers. Secondly, to publicise the John Jick case. Although John Jick was a proud Manx man, the story of his disappearance is not well known on the island. The scout troop he headed certainly knew about it, but outside that, it's not a story that's received really any publicity within the intervening 50 years, and I'd arranged to do an interview with Manx Radio about the case. Thirdly, Joe had sent me on an errand. She wanted to know who a particular person had married back in the 1950s. It was all about tying the Fargas in Burton to the Fargas in the Isle of Man. And fourthly, I'd arranged to meet with two of the scouts that had been on the trip to Liverpool with John Jick. I'd spoken to both of them previously by telephone, but there's nothing quite like a face-to-face -face conversation. And I'm glad I did, because indirectly, it gave me a new lead that I needed to chase down. And I suppose there was a fifth reason. I needed to reach a break point with the John Jick strand of investigation. I wanted to be able to put it in a place where we could safely position it as a possibility before moving on to other things. And there were a few loose ends to tie up before I felt comfortable to do that. But by the time I'd reached my hotel, on the seafront promenade in Douglas, the capital of the island, the rain was horizontal. The waves were overtopping the seawall and a gale was blowing that rattled the windows of my hotel room. I must be mad. So, I enjoyed my full English breakfast the next morning, watching the waves crash over the seawall 
and set to work. I spent two days at the Manx Museum. All the newspapers from the dates I'm specifically interested in, 1969, were there, which was great because the Isle of Man newspapers from that time, they're not available online. So seeing them physically was going to be the only chance that I've got of seeing if we've missed anything. Now, slightly unfortunately, they're all on microfiche, which means scrolling through reel after reel after reel, a page at a time, and that's why it took two days. So, I trawled through all the old issues of the Isle of Man examiner. The story appears pretty much straight after the disappearance. The scouts describing their incredulity at what had happened. The island's chief of scouts mystified by this sudden and very unfortunate turn of events, describing John as a tremendously liked and very popular man. We cannot understand why he should disappear seems to be the theme. The assault in the gents' toilets is then covered a few weeks later. And there's also extensive coverage of the trial of the three youths who attacked him, including the headline, Show You're Alive, which is based on the dramatic courtroom appeal of the defending counsel of the three youths charged with his assault. The counsel went on to say, It does not mean that because a man is missing, he's dead. He may have had personal motives. That's probably true. And it's clear that the instant that Fitzsimmons was apprehended on March the 2nd, he was told that it was believed that he was involved in robbing Mr. Jick. Fitzsimmons replied, yes, I'd done it. I took the book from the fellow. I hit him. And then a couple of days later, Roach and Burke admitted the same. That, to me, at least, doesn't sound like the kind of thing you'd say if you knew you'd murdered him. So, there was nothing really new in the archives, but unless you check, you'll never know. On the Friday, I headed up to the Manx radio studio, set on the top of a windswept headland on the edge of Douglas. Sighted there, presumably, to provide the perfect reception throughout the island, which I'm sure it does, but on a stormy day, absolutely buffeted by the winds. I recorded a very pleasant interview with Simon Richardson, which I hope raises the issue of the disappearance of John Jick on the Isle of Man, which is a story that seems to be long forgotten by most people on the island. A link to an excerpt of that interview will be available in the show notes of this podcast. I mentioned the errand that Joe had sent me on to find a particular marriage certificate. Well, after quite a lot of searching, I did. I found it tucked away in the archives of a local parish church in Douglas. That marriage certificate was useful in working out whether there was a familial link between the Fargas in Burton and John Jick's mother. So we found that certificate. It didn't prove that link. That doesn't mean there isn't a link, but that wasn't the proof. But again, you only find these things out by physically finding that certificate because it wasn't available online. The fourth objective was to speak face-to-face -face with two of the senior scouts that had been on that ill-fated trip. I'd spoken to them both before by telephone, but face-to-face -face conversations are different. Things go off in unexpected and useful directions. Generally, you know the story, so I'm not going to go over that, but I did learn some new things. 
Firstly, that the scouts didn't go back until Monday. I'd always assumed that they went back on the Sunday after the, the Saturday gang show, but in fact it wasn't. It was the Monday, which is interesting because remember they saw John Jick's car at the pier heads in Liverpool, unlocked, still with all the evidence in the car, untouched. It's interesting that that car was still there two days after he went missing. But I also learned the name of someone in the UK who had been in correspondence with John Jick before his disappearance, immediately before his disappearance. This person had been alluded to in some of the newspaper reports, but never identified. In fact, in those reports, it was suggested that John Jick was supposed to meet this person. That man is, I know now, still alive. And through his family, I may soon be in contact with him. Now, that will be a fascinating conversation because that person knew John Jick as well as anyone who is still alive and probably knew John Jick's state of mind immediately before his disappearance. So I'll keep you posted. So that was the Isle of Man. I strongly recommend a visit, but don't go in December, go in summer. It's a fascinating island populated by warm, friendly and very helpful people. Did we discover anything on the Isle of Man that fundamentally changes our thoughts about John Jick? No, we didn't. But that doesn't mean it was a wasted journey. In fact, it was a very, very interesting journey. I flew back on the Saturday. The weather was changing. The storm had blown itself out and the sky was just beginning to clear. The flight path from Douglas to Birmingham takes you directly over Liverpool and the Wirral Peninsula. And as we approached the mainland, the clouds parted. And I found myself looking down, framed by the aircraft window, on Liverpool Pierhead, Birkenhead, and my own little village of Port Sunlight. I could see it all. All the points of interest from the 1st of February 1969 and John Jick's disappearance. It was the perfect image to end that trip. It seems like I've done what I can for John Jick for the time being. There are a few loose ends and we will tidy them up. But it was time to get back to Burton because there was something very interesting waiting for me there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, wherever you are in the world. Whether you're a newbie or whether you've been with us from day one, welcome to a new year of Fred the Head podcasts in 2024. And there are a few new things to update you on. Firstly, we've created a Facebook page specifically for the podcast. You can find the link in the show notes, but it's called The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head, the podcast Facebook page. We'll all be there, Joe, Ian, Magdalena, myself, to answer any questions you may have about the investigation and each new episode as we release them. Be sure to jump in on there and let us know your thoughts and we'll definitely get back to you. Of course, the website www.fredthehead.info is also a fantastic place to see much of the evidence and timelines that we've created over the last couple of years. And of course, you can always reach us by email at fredtheheadpodcast.com at gmail.com we will definitely get back to you but 
let's get back to the story and what I was waiting for. We've spent a lot of time over the last few episodes over in Birkenhead, Liverpool and the Isle of Man. But it was time to get back to Burton, both physically and in the context of the investigation. You'll remember a couple of episodes ago I'd mentioned I'd been in contact with Mick Huff. He is the son of Peter Huff, the original detective. Peter Huff hadn't shared much detail with his family about the investigation or any investigation, but Mick did know someone who his father would have confided in, an old colleague of Peter's, an ex-detective who worked with Peter for years. I met him last week and it was a very interesting conversation. As I often do, I'm going to protect his identity, but it's safe to say that he and Peter had often mused about the circumstances that surrounded Fred's death. But more than that, in preparation for our meeting, he'd revisited many of his old thoughts about the case, looked at them afresh. In fact, you could call it a cold case review. So, we met at the Sump Pub overlooking the burial site. It seemed the most appropriate place, and we spent a fascinating couple of hours discussing the case. There are things he knew that I didn't know, and there are things that I knew that he didn't know. And some of those things you won't know, because I've never discussed them on the podcast before. But it's time to put that right. And we weren't really talking about Fred's identity here. We were really talking about the circumstances that surrounded the discovery of the body the original story, where we started all this. There was something about that discovery that doesn't quite ring true. In fact, quite a number of things. And I'm going to share with you today some of those things that I've never spoken to you about on the podcast before, but which I've known for a while. So we need to go back to Friday, March the 26th, 1971. And sitting there, chatting about some very specific things with one of the very few detectives who was involved in the case, well, they crystallised things in my mind, and I think in his mind. He came armed with a theory of what had happened. And as I added some more pieces of information into that that were new to him, those additional pieces of information seemed to make him more certain that he was on the right track. So this was the theory that he brought to me. Fred was, as the coroner suggested, killed in a sex act that had gone horribly and tragically and unexpectedly wrong. Asphyxiation or cardiac arrest, something of that nature, but consensual and completely unexpected, leaving the other participant or participants with a dead body on their hands. And the choice of burial site was obvious. It was private, inaccessible, and very familiar to them. They both knew it wouldn't be disturbed, and because they frequently visited the site, their presence on the site, if it was ever questioned, would never be considered unusual. So the body was buried. The problem was that body kept re-emerging. 
because of the relatively shallow depth of the soil coverage above the skull, as rain and flooding occurred over and over again, as it does there, that soil was washed away. And every now and again, the top of that skull would become visible again. And this could not go on. Psychologically, they couldn't get away from the tragedy and the cover-up. And the risk was that eventually someone else, quite by accident, was going to come across that body. And the problem wasn't going away. In fact, it was just getting worse. So what's the solution to this terrible situation? Well, the solution was discover the body. Become the people, not who deposited the body, but who found the body. And let's not be coy about it. We're talking about David Nathan and Garth Hamp Gopsall. So that was his theory. In fact, it was not only his theory. It was what he and Peter Huff had often discussed. But there was never any way of proving it. The thing is, I knew a couple of things that he didn't know, which I'm about to tell you now. And when I told him those things, he was even more certain that he was on the right path. And the first piece of information that I knew, which I shared with him, and I'm about to share with you, will come as something of a shock. And that is, after David Nathan died, one of his very closest friends made contact with me and told me that David Nathan, whom I'd got to know reasonably well, wanted me to know something, something he had never revealed before, literally on his deathbed. And that was that the story of the discovery, what he'd told the police, what he'd always said had happened, wasn't true. What David wanted me to know was this. David and Garth, as well as being jewellers, were gunsmiths. Garth had quite an arsenal in the basement of his house. I've heard that separately from a number of people. David Nathan said that they used to shoot from the house into the area that we know now as the deposition site, and we're talking live ammunition across the Trent. Highly illegal, highly dangerous. They used to pick targets and take pot shots. And from Garth's house, you can see absolutely directly into the thicket that we now know as the deposition site. And David said that Fred's skull had been a target. They'd been aiming at it, not knowing what it was. And only then did they go across and become curious about what it was. And that's a completely different story to what David Nathan told the police. And that's what David wanted me to know. It's a strange one, isn't it? Because as far as we're aware, there's no bullet impacts in the skull. There's no evidence of any impact damage that I'm aware of. So they're either a rotten shot, which is possible, but unlikely, or it didn't happen. But why would David Nathan on his deathbed, through an intermediary, want to tell me, Ken Davis, that story. 
Why would he bother going to the trouble of passing that piece of information on to me? What was preying on David Nathan's mind that he had to tell me that? We'd got quite friendly. I always hoped that there may be something that came from David in the end. And this is what he told me. He didn't have to tell me anything. He thought it was important enough to pass it on to me. And thinking about it, it is very, very important. It means the whole discovery story we covered in episode one that was covered in the book, that was told to the police, that is in all the Crime Watch documentaries, that the police have been working on for over 50 years, isn't true. And the fact that David Nathan told a lie immediately on finding the body is very, very suspicious. Why would you lie unnecessarily about the circumstances surrounding the discovery of a human body? And this isn't speculation. David Nathan himself is now on his deathbed as his last act in this terrible tragedy is saying the discovery didn't happen like I said it happened. The second piece of information that I passed on to him and you also need to know doesn't involve David Nathan. It involves Garth Hamp Gopsel. Remember Fred's burial is directly opposite his house across the river accessible by a wooden bridge in fact the wooden bridge that we see in that ATV documentary David Nathan reenacting this now false discovery story that Garth and David had set up shop there in about 1968 so just maybe a year before Fred was killed the deposition site land was owned by the mill Greensmith's Mill. You'll remember it was on the other side of the weir from the mill. They needed access to the site to clear any debris washed onto the weir so that the flow of water was never interrupted. And that bridge was locked with four keys. Garth had a key, the mill director had a key, there was another one at the mill, and one was owned by a farmer. That wooden bridge, the one we know David Nathan walked across, washed away in severe flooding in the 1980s so any access to that land from the newton roadside garth's house was now completely removed you couldn't reach it the only access from garth's house to that site was to go all the way into burton down meadow road and then drive all the way to the site through various gates a trip that used to take 15 seconds now took about 15 minutes. In the 90s, Greensmith's Mill closed. The building was sold and converted to apartments. But of course, Greensmith's Mill also owned the deposition site. But it wasn't relevant to the apartment developers because it was on the other side of the weir and there was no bridge anymore. So they didn't want it. In fact, who would want it? Because you can't access it from Newton Road anymore. And it's difficult to get to even from the other side. Well, someone did want it. Garth Hamp Gopsel bought it. Which is odd. Because he couldn't get to it without making a very long detour. This was the tiny piece of land Fred was buried on. About half an acre. 
What possible reason would you have for wanting to own a piece of land a dead body had been found on that you couldn't get to very easily? Now, I've heard one explanation, and that was that Garth's wife, Anne, who I met, lovely, lovely woman, was fed up with seeing fishermen urinate into the river from her window. Now, that's possible. But that seems like going to extreme lengths when you could just shut your curtains. So, my new police colleague, the 82-year-old retired detective, had shared his theory that David Nathan and Gartham Gopsall had first buried, then, inverted commas, discovered the body. And I shared with him the fact that I knew now from David Nathan that he hadn't been exactly truthful about the discovery story and that Garth had bought the deposition site after the bridge linking his house to that site had long washed away. What was Garth's connection with that land? As you can imagine, that information only cemented further his belief in his theory. And I have to admit, it's very convincing. And there's more to add to this. But that's enough for one episode. So, until next time, have a good one.